Hey guys, I just want to say a special thank you to every single person who is rating and reviewing this podcast. You don't understand how much that is meaningful to me. So today I want to do a special shout out to Julcy who left this review. To say I'm empowered is not enough. Thank you for every single word and struggle you share. This podcast gives me hope, excitement and helps me to stay true to myself unapologetically. I'm 17 and I'm creating on my own. It's wonderful to have you on my journey. Julcy, thank you so much. That's so sweet. And 17, girl, you're just on your way. Keep going. We've all heard of Sigmund Freud. His groundbreaking discoveries of psychoanalysis from 1856 to 1939 brought to light the effects the unconscious mind has on human behavior. And his studies still remain influential to this day. But guys, that was over 80 years ago. Since then, we've invented the microwave, a man walked on the moon, iPhones, internet, and YouTube have all been created. Yep, evolution is a fundamental part of who we are. And so our theories and understanding on the human mind must also evolve. And today's guest is at the forefront of this discussion. After completing her studies at Stanford, Yale Medical School and the NYU Residency Training Program in Psychiatry, today's woman of impact found herself living the life she thought she always wanted. But she couldn't shake the fact that something was still missing. So she turned to the techniques and tools she had learned during her medical training. But it didn't help. Something was still missing from her life. And like a match to a flame, her spiritual journey was ignited. While studying Kabbalah, she lived in over 50 countries, working with South American shamans and Indian gurus, as well as learning Buddhist meditation. And now having spent more than 15 years studying, conducting research, she's come to a startling conclusion. Our lingering feelings of dissatisfaction directly coincide with our spiritual neglect. She has now taken her discoveries and in her best-selling book, Fulfilled, How the Science of Spirituality Can Help You Live a Happier, More Meaningful Life, she lays out the fascinating scientific research and through inspiring success stories, she integrates the best of Western medicine with the universal spiritual principles to help her patients and the rest of the world find more meaning, more joy and more fulfillment in their lives. Showing that unlike Freud's photo on Wikipedia, everything isn't always black and white. With over 70 academic articles on various topics in psychiatry, this woman of impact is helping us achieve our highest level of psychological, emotional, and mental fulfillment. So guys, please help me in welcoming the woman who is filling us up with actionable steps on how to reclaim our lives. The woman who is filling us up with tactics on how to overcome fear and doubt. And the woman who is filling us up with her mission to help us truly be fulfilled. The utterly fulfilling Anna Yusim. Thank you so much, Lisa. Welcome That's to the, the show. best introduction ever. Oh, thank you, my dear. <laughs> You've got so much gold in your book. So, but what I want to start is talk to me about masks, because I think mm-hmm. that's really where everything starts, is that we're brought up um, and you say that we all wear masks and the key is to take the mask off. Absolutely. So masks are our false identities and masks can come in so many different ways. Sometimes we could be happy, but actually show that we are not so happy because we're afraid people will be jealous or people will feel as though, you know, a little uncomfortable. Or the opposite, we can actually be deeply insecure or sad inside, but actually put on a happy face and really hide that. Those are some examples of masks. But we learn early on that masks sometimes are necessary because to show our true vulnerable selves isn't safe. So we adopt these masks as a form of a shield or an armor, but only later realizing that they keep us from our own truth. 
The masks I see as our ego. Underneath the mask is our soul and our soul potential. Underneath is where we want to get. We want to start living an authentic life, align with our soul in every level. But that's hard because we have to figure out what all the different voices within us are. And that's the voice of our society telling us who we should be and what we should do. The voices of our parents, of our teachers, of our spouse, of our children. And then there's that still quiet voice within, which is the voice of our soul, our intuition. And that's that little voice. That's the path to authenticity. All right, so take me back. So I'm sitting here right now and I'm thinking, okay, so I've got all these voices in my head. Sometimes you don't even know if it's your voice or if it's the voice of your parents that has become so embedded in you that you believe it to be true. Absolutely. So how do you start differentiating whose voice has been given to you versus who is your authentic voice? Absolutely. And usually people will only come to that question when they've come to a path in the road where things are hard, where things just aren't mm -hmm. working, and they can't get at the root of the problem. And that's when they start questioning. Why am I here? Who am I? What am I meant to be doing here? Am I living my purpose? Do I want this life? Or do I want to do things a little differently? And that's when you can start to go deeper and start to differentiate all of these different voices. All right, so once you start differentiating all these voices, how do you then shed the voices that aren't serving you? You start first and foremost making space for that still quiet voice within. Now that still quiet voice can only be heard when the yelling of all the other voices temporarily ceases. Mm. And all the other voices are our rational mind. You know, the part of us that always is weighing pros and cons, which is very useful to have. We don't want to negate our rational mind. We want to use our rational mind in the service of our life, but not to make the most important decisions in our life. Mm. Sometimes people are making pro and con lists, doing what they think is more pro than con, and yet finding themselves unfulfilled. Why is that? Because there's something deeper. There's an intuition that's not being heard or acknowledged. So that's the first voice we want to get through. Okay. The second voice is the voice of emotions. That's another voice that could be just as loud. Sometimes emotions can speak in the service of our intuition, but sometimes they can actually undermine our intuition. Our emotions can be so strong and overpowering, our fear, our sadness, our happiness, our joy, that sometimes it can even bury that little voice within. Mm -hmm. So we need to quiet that as well. So how do you get at that still quiet you voice? You literally exactly, that my exactly. next question. <laughs> right. So that's that place of stillness. We're not used to stillness in our society, which is really why meditation and practices that encourage stillness and temporary momentary silence and inwardness are so powerful. And that could entail mindful meditation. It could be taking a walk in nature. It could be going and talking with some close friends, but in a very open-hearted, beautiful way. Mm -hmm. For some people, it includes traveling on their own. For some people, it's doing a 10-day uh, Vipassana retreat of pure silence, but really starting to look within and starting to, rather than look for all the answers to your life's questions outside of yourself, really finding them in your own soul. I love that. And is that what you discovered in your own journey? Yeah. So my own journey was precisely that. I was doing everything that was expected of me. I was going to medical school. I was in residency. I was getting my awards. I was working hard. I had a wonderful, at the time, relationship. You know, things were like, according to the outside world, all lined up. But yet I was feeling so unfulfilled and I had no idea why. Mm. And the reason for that was because I really had never stopped to listen to my own soul. And for me, traveling really was such a vital part. Traveling on my own to finally make the space for my own voice and to separate myself from all the expectations of everybody else in my life because I'm a, such a people pleaser. Mm. I love to please everybody. And so to do that, and especially if you're in residency in medical school, there's plenty of people who want pleasing. And being a people pleaser, you'll get good grades, your professors will love you. 
but then you'll feel disconnected from your own self. Mm. And that's where I found myself. And it enabled me to finally really start to take off some of these masks we're talking about. You know, the masks. And what, what are these masks? For me, it was always looking happy, always, you know, being like up. And, and actually inside, I was feeling quite sad and disconnected and depressed and lonely, even, you know, with everything around me. So finally admitting that to myself and then going to a space where I'm like, okay, well, this is where I'm at. Now I can finally sit with myself and just be here. And where to from here? You really slow down and reconnect with yourself. And then from there, I started to rebuild my life. Luckily, I was close to the end of residency. And I found for me, the thing that was really missing was a connection to something greater than myself. And so that's when I started living my life with a new sense of purpose and started looking more into ideas of soul and understanding really what I'm supposed to be doing and how I'm supposed to be doing it. Yeah. So first of all, um, it's so fascinating that people almost do the opposite. So when you're feeling depressed or down inside, they exude happiness. Um, and it made me think of comedians mm -hmm. that, um, at least from what I've heard, comedians are typically the most clinically depressed humans out there. But they're the ones that are the most funny. So that's actually, it's, it's called a neurotic defense, a psychoanalytic defense. It's called reaction formation. You do the exact opposite of what you're feeling, right? It's like another example, killing someone with kindness. Mm -hmm. You really don't like somebody, but instead what you do is you're super, super kind to them, cloyingly sweet, right? And so that's actually a psychoanalytic thing. And it's a way of reducing your own anxiety because you're so afraid of your true feelings. That's where that defense comes from. And there's even a term for it, reaction formation. Right. How do I know when it's authentic? Like when I'm yeah. exuding energy, like yeah. when do I know that it's authentic versus I'm disguising something? And that's such a great question, right? Because it comes down to how you feel when you are with yourself. Because you could be with a whole bunch of other people, like exuberant, et cetera. But how do you feel when you're alone with your own self, looking yourself in the mirror? If you're feeling those feelings, if life is feeling purposeful, meaningful, joyful, beautiful, amazing, keep doing what you're doing. And, it, and you don't have to go digging for something that's mm. inauthentic because it might not be there. Mm. It only will come up when something does feel off to you. You know, like when you're living your life and you're feeling like, no, you know, I'm feeling these feelings, but it's not matching how I'm coming across to the world. There's a mismatch here. Okay. That's what the issue was for me. And that's when I started. And for me, how did I even figure it out? Oh, yeah. I hired like... I started working with the most wonderful psychiatrist in New York City. So he helped me to understand my own defenses because mm. we're complex people, right? Yeah. And even if we're, we're educated, et cetera, sometimes we, it's hard to look at ourselves. So true. Yeah. When you decided, I'm going to travel, I'm going to explore things, um, was that a difficult decision to make? Because you talk about people, um, the word should, right? Like we always mm -hmm. do things that we think we should do. Right. Um, right. So how did you handle that personally? And what advice would you give to other people? Right. Um, what right. is that first step in making that yes. transition? Yes. So I would say baby steps. And that's actually what I did. Start to take off some of the shoulds. And... Um, I think even little bitty baby steps will give people a sense if they're going in the right direction. They don't need to have a cataclysmic life change. For some people, sometimes they do, and that's like, you know what, I need to change everything. Mm -hmm. I have had patients do that, you know, as a psychiatrist, but that's not always feasible, possible, especially if you have children, if you're married, if you have a lot of responsibilities in your job, you can't just say, you know what, I'm going to travel through Europe. Mm -hmm. That would seem, probably it wouldn't gel with your own values, it would seem irresponsible, it wouldn't seem right. But doing something little, trying something new, really putting on a different hat and stepping into a new space, 
I think that's where you begin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, I really want to talk about soul corrections. Yes. I found this yes. so fascinating. Mm -hmm. So if you can break that down for us. Sure, yeah. So your soul purpose is made up of two things. Your soul purpose is your soul correction and your soul contribution. So your soul contribution is doing this amazing show and bringing so much light to the world and also being able to share so many other people's light through you know, this medium. That's your soul contribution. Now your soul correction, together the two make your soul purpose. Mm -hmm. And your soul correction is that thing which for you has been, despite your best efforts, this really difficult obstacle to overcome. Mm -hmm. And it's different for all of us. Right, like mine, one of them, as I wrote about it in my book, was finding authenticity, aligning with my soul. That was one of my soul corrections. Soul corrections are akin to what Sigmund Freud called repetition compulsions. Mm. So those things that come up in our lives again and again and again, often much to our chagrin and dismay and despite our best efforts to change it. So let's talk about that then. Um, one thing I think that a lot of people, um, at least in my life, have um, faced is um, they, they can't choose the right partner. Mm -hmm. In particular, a lot of people keep choosing emotionally unavailable men. Mm. Like that could be somebody's soul correction. And they keep choosing these people who are somehow really attractive, very powerful into them at first. But then when the question of a relationship comes up, the guy runs like the wind, not interested, not available. And I've had patients choose that person over and over and over. Mm. So that's one kind of unavailable person. Another kind of repetition compulsion is partners who are in any way abusive or controlling. Mm. And so why then are we drawn to the same people over and over? Mm. That's precisely that soul correction. This is the thing that we need to look within to better understand and therefore to shift. So for instance, the person who kept drawing in a partner who is abusive, is that partner somehow indicative of abuse that they may have experienced, whether knowingly or unknowingly, either as a child or in what way does that person need to give over their power? If that person maybe can own more of their power, then maybe they don't need to give away their power so much and feel, if they can mm. feel more empowered, then they don't need to have somebody who's gonna so overpower them. But then when the soul searching starts, why do they draw on that person? Where were the red flags? Why were the red flags overlooked? Oftentimes you start with that question and you see that they actually knew way, way early on, but you get so scared and you get so attached to that person you feel there might not be anybody else you know I'm damaged goods I can't possibly leave this person they're so damaged they're gonna mm. you know be empty without me there's all sorts of reasons why people choose to stay so yeah. how do you start correcting that so if it's um, yeah. obviously I understand the extremes of you know abuse and things like that but um, what if it's just somebody who just cannot find the right partner because like you said they're emotionally unavailable when it comes to it yeah. how do you start to um, unpack that and then mm -hmm. change that course Right, and so your question is, is it the person or you know, is it the other person or is it us? Right. I think at the end of the day, it's always us because we are the ones drawing in that person, mm -hmm. right? And so Catherine Woodward Thomas wrote this book, Calling in the One. And this book is 49 different soul corrections that we as human beings have that can get in the way of us finding the right person. Her philosophy is that the way you find your soulmate isn't you go out and you meet a million people. It's actually you work on yourself and you clear up whatever blockages exist within you mm. to bringing in your partner. And once you do that, once you clear your blockages, that person will come into your life, whether that be through a friend, you bump into them on the street, you meet them on you know, Hinge or Tinder or something like that. 
So it's really about doing that personal work and taking responsibility for all the people that we draw in, mm. as opposed to seeing ourselves as victims of circumstance, mm. of, you know, there's just no guys out there. Or there's, you know, it's, it's all the guys, it's not me. Right. Yeah. It seems like it's a pattern and a habit almost. Yeah, exactly. Um, so once like you're able to break that, then um, you're saying the person will then, in essence, come to you. Exactly, exactly. Or that you will somehow draw them in. And often, if we keep drawing in the wrong person, we might have an issue with commitment. We say that we want it so, so much, and yet somehow or another our actions aren't matching that. We keep drawing in people incapable of that. That was my thing for so long. I kept drawing in emotionally unavailable men, one after the other, until I realized it wasn't the men. And you realize a really important universal principle called the mirror principle, that you don't draw in what you want, mm. you draw in who you are. I was drawing in these emotionally unavailable men because a part of me was emotionally unavailable. And it was only when I was really able to look at that and start to do some really serious work on myself that I finally was able to meet my husband who I've been married to now for three years. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I really want to break down the soul corrections yeah. um, and starting with mirror images. Yeah. Um, it's this idea that whatever bothers us in other people is often actually a reflection of something in ourselves. So I was drawing in all these emotionally unavailable people and it was driving me nuts. Mm. But that's because I hadn't seen that in me. So whatever it is that's drawing us to other people that's not working, how does that show up in us? How is that actually a reflection of something we haven't yet worked through within ourselves? And so how do we, because what I love about your book as well is you give exercises at the mm -hmm. end of each chapter, which mm -hmm. is fantastic. So what would be an exercise here for that, um, yeah. for that? Yeah. So ask yourself the question, what bothers you most about other people? Okay. And whatever that is, how is that a, a reflection of something within you? Something that either you haven't yet worked through or something that could be deep within or you have worked through, but it's still kind of on the tip of your consciousness that mm. it's, you're still bothered by it. Because we all do this, right? And the things that bother us, we look at it in ourselves, we clear it out in ourselves, and then suddenly it doesn't bother us so much when it's done to us. And it, we kind of mm. like become immune to it, mm. you know? That's interesting. Yeah, so working on that so that it doesn't bother you when other people do it to you. Exactly, mm. exactly. That's fascinating. It's interesting. Um, all right, let's go into repetition compulsions. Yes. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so that is that Sigmund Freud concept of these things that come up in our life. And it's not things that we choose or draw in. It's actually things that we're like, oh my God, this happened again. Like I created this situation again. I drew in someone who takes advantage of me again. I drew in dishonest partners again. And often you are given this soul correction in order for your soul to be able to recognize it and make a different choice. Mm -hmm. And once you realize what's happening, because usually it takes a few repetitions of this. Right. It's like the second time around, you're like, I've been here. This isn't the first time. This isn't the first rodeo here. I've been here in the same situation, feeling these same feelings. What do I need to do to pull myself up? Mm. And then you can actually make a different choice. Then you could, because when you recognize the repetition compulsion, you also recognize that it's your choices and you have different choices. And once you make a different choice, you free yourself. But it's even deeper than that. Often these repetition compulsions come from generation to generation mm. to generation. It's like learned patterns of behavior, learned patterns of you know, intergenerational transmission. Once you shift your pattern, you don't just shift it for you, you actually shift it for all future generations. That's actually why things like therapy and doing this kind of inner work are so powerful. Mm. It doesn't just affect you, but every generation after. Mm. 
So how do you deal with denial? Because I'm sure you get a lot of people. Tons, who, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you deal with that? Because even though it's a re, re, it's repetitive and you can even show them, right? Like probably on a like piece of paper, like, look, you did it here, you did it here, you did it here, yeah. you did it here. But I'm sure you still get people that are de denying that it's yeah. them. How yeah. do you break them out of that? So as with all of therapy, you meet people where they're at. And if they're at that point of denial, you can you know, call them on it if you feel comfortable saying, mm. you know what? So denial is one way of dealing with this. And it seems like maybe you're dealing with it right now because it's really hard to accept the reality. But that's a hard thing to say to people. Not everyone can hear that, mm -hmm. you know? And so if you meet them where they're at, then you more empathize and sympathize and just understand where it is that they're, you know, at right now over time. It'll, it'll get to them. That's it'll what I was going to ask. Yeah. How do you meet someone where they're at and still make progress? Yeah, some people go so quick. You have one insight, they get it, they make a change, they go. Other people, it could take a year. Like you could be saying something at the first session and saying the exact same thing one year later. Mm -hmm. And they've maybe moved like this. Other people are already like on chapter 18. What? You know, this person's like halfway through chapter one. Mm -hmm. And that's okay because that's their path and that's their course. You know, and it's not that anyone needs to speed up, slow down. If they needed to, they would. And you can point out to them, some people need you to, you know, more of the tough love approach. Some people need more empathy and compassion. And so it's also kind of meeting people where they're at, where they're at with that. And so how do you test that? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening right now that it, even if it's not them going through something, they want to yeah. try and help someone, their, mm -hmm. their mother or their brother or sister or their partner. Um, and they're mm -hmm. listening to this and they're like, they just keep denying that they have a problem. Right. They meet them where they're at. Like you said, it's all baby steps, it's small moments. Yeah. Um, how do you eventually get them to actually take action, I guess? Like if it's, yeah. if it's so- It has to hurt enough. It has to hurt enough. If it doesn't hurt enough, there's, you know, no one's going to change for somebody else. Mm. It has to hurt enough for them. That could be, so the guy could change only after his wife leaves him. He loses his job, you know, because his wife could have been telling him, honey, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. If you keep doing this, I'm going to get a divorce. And he doesn't listen. He's in denial. Mm -hmm. And then one day she gets a divorce. And then the next day he loses his job. And then he's like, you know what? Now I have a problem. Now I'm going to go do something about it. What I often will say to husbands and wives with this issue, mm -hmm. if it's them who've come to see me and it's their wives and husbands who have the problems, are really to hold that space. Because holding that space is really, really powerful. And what it, does that mean exactly? Yeah. And what that means is for you to see, to so even take like one to two minutes out of your day every day to imagine your husband or wife being the person you know that they could be. And that means being who they are, like even looking different without whatever habit you want them to break, um, with whatever kind of job you want them to have, treating you differently, treating the kids differently, treating other people differently, behaving, like to really create that. And by you creating that with your mind and in your thoughts, by visualizing it, mm. you're putting a little seed into the ether and like you're planting that seed for it to grow. You could hold the space for someone before they're ready yet to hold the space for themselves. Mm. It's actually a really powerful exercise. And does that also then, when you're thinking about that, is, is the way you then act towards them, like do you think that there's that projection where it's like if you see yeah. someone being successful and so when you talk to them, you have that, you know, emotion and that voice, is that kind of like, do you think that that makes a difference as well? I'm, I'm sure that that does because I think it works on multiple levels. Right. You know, with the universe, the universe is so complex, like you planting the seed in the ether, right. that probably changes your psychology, right. your husband or wife will feel, it'll change their psychology right. and it's also a way of you not losing hope, mm. you know, of oh. you being able to do something when it feels like all hope is lost. That's interesting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. All right, and let's go to boundaries. I yes. really want to talk mm -hmm. about boundaries. I find um, I'm going to generalize, and people are going to hate me for saying this. Why do you think women specifically yeah. have 
problems creating boundaries right exactly so first we'll define boundaries what are boundaries okay, yeah. boundaries is where i end and where you begin right our boundaries are right here and boundaries more like to think more about just day to day like this is what i'm willing to share this is what i'm not this is what i'm willing to give this is what i'm not it's knowing who you are and what you're willing to put on the table with a given person or in a given relationship and boundaries are changeable they're malleable they change with people they change with time they change with circumstance but to know your own boundaries, you have to be comfortable enough with yourself to really feel in real time what you're comfortable doing versus not. Okay. So why is it that women sometimes can have a hard time setting boundaries? Because women like to be pleasers. Women like to give. Women are the matriarchs, the ones, you know, the givers of society. They're the ones taking care of their husband, of their families, of children, of companies. And so it could be harder for them to say no. Inherent in the concept of boundaries is this concept of saying no. You know, like, and because at the end of the day, a boundary is a no. Mm -hmm. It's like you can come this close, but not this close. This close, but not this close. And so historically in society, men say no, women say yes. Mm -hmm. Obviously not always. We have a whole U2 movement. There's sure. a whole issue with that. But more historically and culturally, there's, that's kind of where it comes from. And that, that's, I think, why women more often have trouble. I think that people, at least for me, find it the most difficult to set boundaries that, with people that are the closest to me. Mm -hmm. um, how do people start to do that? Yeah, and so this is the interesting thing with boundaries, right? We think that if we set a boundary, it's gonna push someone away. Right. It's actually the exact opposite. It's like the old adage, good fences make good neighbors. The stronger your boundaries, the closer you can get to somebody. If my boundaries are strong, I don't mind getting close to you. I don't mind even getting really close to you when I need to, because I'm not afraid that you're somehow gonna disrupt my identity, disrupt my sense of who I am, mess up my life. I know that I could say no, and I know that I could say, this is how much I can give and not more. Right? Mm -hmm. But if you don't know that, then you keep giving and giving and giving until you're drained and lost and have nothing left to give. And that's why boundaries are actually essential, especially when you're doing work similar to what you're doing, which is like giving light all the time. And especially for healers, boundaries are so essential. That's why in physicians, there's such a burnout epidemic because they can give and give and give. Mm. And it's hard to know when to say, I can't give anymore. I'm like, I'm done especially for powerful women. Mm. Setting no is so crucial because you're powerful. You have a ton of energy. You can do all those things, right? Probably and more, but it's the question, do you want to? Mm. And is that serving your highest good given where you are in life, what you want to be doing and what you need to be able to balance all the things that are important in your life, which are all the things that you do for your mm. friends, career, etc. but also your marriage, yourself, your you know relationship with just the higher, whatever your higher sense of you know, purpose is. Yeah. So what are, would it be the same technique in certain boundaries with strangers? I think often people find have an easier time saying no to strangers mm. than they do to people. So I think you're exactly right. It's the people that are closest to us that it's the hardest to say no to sometimes. But that's also the most important thing. That's the most important negotiation of boundaries. Boundaries also between mothers and daughters and mothers and sons and between spouses. And in a way, it's like the question that you're asking when you're setting a boundary is how close is too close? How far is too far? You're always doing this delicate dance. And like with some, you know, like a mother-daughter can be mm. too close sometimes, it doesn't feel right, then they move a little further, too far, not right, and so it's a delicate dance. Okay, this feels just right. When we're this close and spend this much time together and confide in each other about this much stuff, that feels really, really good. And then, you know, the daughter gets a little older, the mother can confide in each other a little bit more, and a little bit more, the boundaries change. And so it's that constant dance that you're doing with the people close to you. So what if you have a boundary and it's someone that's close to you and they have a boundary, but they don't meet each other? That happens a lot. That happens like with a woman dating a new man and she's like, I really just want to know more. I want to like know everything. Right. I want him to bear a soul. And he's like, 
not interested. Mm. I'm just not there yet with you. I don't feel comfortable. I don't trust you. Or that I just don't think of the world in that way. I don't have much more to bear. I've told you everything. You know, she's like, no, but there must be more. No, but I've told you everything. And so that's really the other thing is finding people whose boundaries are compatible with yours. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so you give an example of Andrea, I believe her name is, in the book about boundaries, mm-hmm. the mother and daughter. Yes. Um, I found that fascinating because specifically mother and daughter as well. Because yes. when I think about who has the hardest boundaries, it it probably, at least for me, it feels like it would be mother and daughter. Mm-hmm. I actually don't have that with my mom. Yeah. My mom's really good at boundaries. Yeah. Um, I set them and she's like, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but why do you think that that is? Oh, definitely. I think um, in that particular case, it's based on a patient. It's based loosely on a patient mm. of mine. And that mother had her daughter very early. Her daughter became her whole identity. Watching her daughter grow up, she identified with her daughter. Her daughter's successes were her successes. Her daughter's failures were her failures. She was living her own life out. And actually, it was a life she never had because she had a daughter so young. And so she identified so closely with her daughter that it choked her daughter almost. Mm. Her daughter didn't have room to breathe. And so when her daughter had a breakup, her mom was more upset about the breakup than her daughter. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, she felt like she always had to be walking on eggshells because mom had such strong emotional responses to what was going on in you know, the daughter's life. So the boundaries there were just too, they were mm. too permeable. We needed the boundaries to be tighter there. And so it was the mother who was my patient. So we worked with her of how can I loosen my boundaries? How can I give my daughter the freedom that she needs to live her life, to spread her wings and fly without being so affected by the ups and downs? How can I know she's going to be okay even if I'm not there with her constantly? Mm. Even if she makes mistakes, even if she has breakups, even if she does things that I don't want her to do. Well, in that situation, the mother clearly recognized then that the relationship wasn't healthy. But what yes. if you're the daughter and the mother thinks the, the relationship is exactly how it should be? I have a lot of cases like that. And it's really hard for children because they want mom's love. And if the boundaries are too solid, mom's love gets taken away and then they feel you know themselves flailing. So that definitely happens. But it's also the children starting to own their own power mm. and recognizing that this is what they need to do in order to own you know, their own lives that they can't be controlled by what mom believes, what dad believes. They have to step into their own sense of adulthood and be who they really are. Yeah, because my mom's amazing. Like she, mm-hmm. she's very good at boundaries and you know, she, yeah. if I say something, she absolutely hears it and takes it mm-hmm. in. But um, especially in the Greek community, the yeah. mothers do live for their children. And it usually is, oh, you don't love me anymore. Like it becomes like such a big thing about like love and how you don't value them anymore. Like that can be quite traumatizing as the the child to hear. Um, And I've seen people then go, it's just not worth it. Like how do you, what do you suggest people do in those situations? It's really, really hard. And it just, now, now that you say that, it makes me think about a few Greek families that I work with, which and it's, just, <laughs> really? it's, it's exactly what you're describing, very, very much so. And I feel like in those cases, because rarely in those cases do the daughters want to just extricate from the family. No, right. they want to be close to mom right. and dad. Mom and dad's love means so much because mm-hmm. mom and dad also give so, so much and are loving and doting and caring. And you don't and, want to And just, you get that. I've given yes. my life up for you. Of course, I've of heard, course. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And in many ways they have. Right. It's true. That's their perspective. That's how they view things. Right. But 
Just because mom has given her life up for you doesn't mean that then you have to give your life up for mom, right? It's a little different. Mm -hmm. What you're gonna do is you're gonna give your life up if you so choose and in whatever way is right for you, for your child mm -hmm. and them for their child and you know, vice versa, if you mm -hmm. so choose. It's more one of those generational things as opposed to it doesn't exactly go back and forth, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, so it's hard, and you didn't force mom to give her life up for right. you, <laughs> you know. And that's often um, the patients' comebacks. So like, I didn't ask you to do this; that was your choice. Yeah. So oftentimes, the children then just have to set their boundaries mm. and hope that the parents, you know, are able to accept those boundaries and slowly over time assimilate. And as always, you know, part of my therapy is always uh, kind of a spiritual system. Whatever you set your boundaries, you also pray that the other person's able to accept it, to assimilate it, to step into the best version of themselves and into their higher self, mm. to be able to kind of own that, to, re to take that boundary not as a sign of rejection, but as a welcoming and opportunity to step into a higher version of themselves. I love that. Um, okay, and now the last correction mm -hmm. is lack of self-love, which I actually have a quote yeah. of yours here. Um, I, so you actually give an example of what people mm -hmm. should do if um, if they're not feeling like they have the self-love. Um, to look in the mirror, I love you. I approve of you. I know you are doing the best you can. I love you just the way you are. I love you. Mm -hmm. um, that was really strong. But I've also heard you talk about wanting to grow and change and get better. Yeah. And so I always love asking this question is how do you do the duality of loving yourself mm -hmm. just the way you are and knowing that you have to improve and get better every single day? Right, right. And, and that's a beautiful question. I think you kind of, in your question is the answer. Right. It's like, the, it's um, owning that duality and living that duality. And in Kabbalah, they have a term that describes that duality. Mm. It's called mati velomati. It's like being here and there at the same time. So on one hand, loving and accepting yourself, just like you said, exactly as you are with your imperfections with all the things that you want to change, but just loving yourself here. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, seeking to grow and be a better version of yourself and expand and transform and evolve. So it's being both at once and that you are going to kind of go between these two, but that neither of them is bad and it not, it's not that one is better than the other, mm -hmm. but being able to own all parts of yourself. And how important do you think that is to fulfillment? Huge. It's huge. And it's so hard because in our culture, we actually often have a self-hatred epidemic, right? Mm -hmm. People are always criticizing themselves. Either that's not perfect about themselves. They're comparing themselves to others. They want to be more this or more that or more this or more that, you know? And it's hard. It's really hard. It's being able to own yourself as you are, see your strengths and love yourself. And whatever isn't a strength, love that too. Mm. Um, you talk a lot about spirituality. Mm -hmm. um, how important is the power of the mind to you? Oh, hugely important because really the spirit and the mind, they're one. They all, you know, yes, the spirit comes from the heart and it also comes from your soul, but it also comes from the mind and mind, body, and spirit are so, so connected. Mm. You know, and people ask, what's the soul, right? Why? In all my studies I, um, and travels, I went and I asked many people that very question, what is the soul? And my very favorite answer to that question came from a Mexican shaman with whom I work named Fernando Broca. He said the soul is comprised of two parts. The first part is that which connects us to everybody else. Mm. Often they say that we're one unified soul. So it's our inherent interconnectedness. And then the second part of the soul is really your soul purpose. It's that which makes you unique, the way in which you're meant to share your talents, skills, abilities, interests with the world. And so our soul is this two-part system, our interconnectedness with others, and then our uniqueness. Mm, I love that. Mm -hmm. um, the reason why I actually asked you about that is mm -hmm. because I know um, I've heard you talk about the placebo effect yes. um, and then the nocebo effect. Mm -hmm. um, so talk to me about that and then what Absolutely. is the nocebo effect? Absolutely right. And the placebo and the nocebo effect, they really 
really show the power of the mind, mm -hmm. either to heal or to harm. Right. That's what they are. It's, it's fascinating. So the placebo effect is when we take a sugar pill, that pill, that sugar pill, not a real medication, has as powerful of an effect as any medication that we would take. And why does it have such a powerful effect? People have many thoughts on this, but first and foremost, because we expect in our minds mm -hmm. for it to have that effect. So that's why for all clinical trial, double-blind control trials for all drugs and for the majority of treatments, they're always comparing the, the trial drug with a placebo. And the trial drug has to do better, not just than nothing, but better than the placebo, which always does better than nothing. Which is insane. Which is insane, which is fascinating. Yeah. But what that shows is the placebo effect. People are like, oh, it's just the placebo effect. But that is a real effect. Your mind and the power of your mind to expect healing actually brings healing. That's a huge thing. Mm -hmm. That's why it's so important what we as doctors place into our patients' minds when we give them certain medications or treatments. That's why it's so important to frame a certain treatment in a given way. You don't ever want to mislead people. You don't want to give them false hope, etc. But you want to give them hope. You want to show them this actually could really help you. Um, have you ever given a placebo to somebody? It's, like, what is the ethics behind that? Like, can you say, yeah. like, can you give someone a placebo, but it's... Like you know, you can th tell there, have been, there have been trials where they actually said, I'm going to be giving you a sugar pill and this pill is going to have all these effects. And this pill has been shown to have all these effects. You can't actually lie to patients or you can't ever mislead people, of course. But you can actually tell them that the power of the mind is very important. And you're going to be taking this pill. And I can tell you that in the past, this pill has had this much reduction in whatever symptoms you have. Mm -hmm. And placebos do have those reductions. So that actually is the truth. So now placebos have an evil twin, the nocebo effect, right? <laughs> Fascinating, too. And so that, you know, the placebo effect is our expectation to heal, that this is going to help me. The nocebo effect is actually the opposite expectation. It's based on this implicit belief nothing's going to help me, that I'm helpless, and that the world is like a dark place. The world is a dangerous place. Things do not get better. It's based on a lot of those kind of underlying beliefs, which are scary because we project those beliefs onto a pill, mm. and then we get these very real effects. So, and both placebo and nocebo, that's what we hold in our minds. That's how we, you know, it, the pills are no different, but it's how we interact with those pills. I used to think that was so woo-woo and until right? my health um, started getting really yeah. bad and nothing was helping. I was going to, mm. you know, what um, society deemed the best doctors, you know, um, yeah. and I still was not getting better. Mm -hmm. And so I started experimenting. I was like, well, right. if this isn't working, then what, what can I try? And mm -hmm. everyone was like, oh, you should try this, you should try that. So I started like trying acupuncture. Right. Um, yeah. and Everything I try now, I go in like, this is going to be it. This is going to cure me. I love it. And because I understand now I do yeah. the power of the mind. And if I go right. in thinking a negative thought or this is woo yes. or this isn't going to work, then well, guess what? It's not going to work. Of course. Of so course. now people are like, well, how are you finding acupuncture? And I'm like, I love it. I was like, mm -hmm. I think it's working. You know, exactly, it seems exactly. like, but I, I truly go in believing it will work. Right. Um, right. And hmm. I think since I've changed my um, way of thinking, with no matter what doctor or whatever trial mm -hmm. I go through, um, I've been getting progressively better. And I don't so doubt that it, yeah. part of it isn't the power of the mind. Um, well, your book is so jam-packed of just incredible takeaways and tactics for people. Um, but if you. you had to give people three things that they could do immediately to be fulfilled, mm -hmm. what three things could they do immediately? Right, so first, identify your fears. And remember that the majority of your fears are F-E-A-R, false evidence appearing real. Most of our fears are just manifestations of ego, right? Not all of them. Many fears could be very healthy. And you know, if you're on a cliff and you fear jumping off the cliff, 
don't jump, rightly so. <laughs> but there's so many fears that are more anxiety-based that hold us back. So identify them and start to work through them. That's number one. Number two, do the work with the soul corrections. Identify what is my soul correction? What are those things that start coming up in my life again and again and again? often much to my chagrin and dismay, and despite my best effort to change it. And what is my soul supposed to learn through this? Mm. And number three, I think it has to do with what you said regarding placebos and nocebos. Understand what your deeply held implicit core beliefs are about health and about healing and about different treatments and start to question what are those beliefs? What kind of patterns do I see in the healings I've had, the different treatments I've had? And are those patterns that I like and if so, great? And if not, how do I start to question, just like you have started doing, your beliefs as they interact with your treatments? Mm. Wow, you dropped those like bombs, girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what do you consider your superpower to be? I think my superpower is helping people identify their soul corrections. Going through this whole process and working with so many people, I love helping people understand and identify what they're supposed to be doing in this world and also what they're supposed to be overcoming, like why their souls have had the challenges that they have. I love that. So where can people find the book? Where can they follow you? Yeah, so the book is available on Amazon and anywhere else books are sold. And I have a website, www.annayusum.com, which has upcoming events and it has my newsletter and all the other things that people may want. Mm, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Guys, guys, you got to go check out this woman. I had so much fun reading her book. And when I say reading, I mean audible, of course, but still, <laughs> she's still got it on hardback. So go check it out if you guys want to be fulfilled too. If you're not following me, follow me at Lisa Bilyeu. And if you're not following us on YouTube, click that subscribe button down there. And until next time, guys, go be the hero of your own life. <laughs>